Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. This is episode number 143. My name is Gons. Basil is out for this intro-outro thing, but again, he is part of the discussion, and that's all that matters. We had an opportunity to chat with Jay Dyer, author of Esoteric Hollywood, and we talked about his satirical approach to addressing the deeper agendas coming out of the entertainment industry. But before we do, let me quickly go over a few things we got going on over here. We have weekly episodes of Canary Cry News Talk. And during Basil's absence, we've had Chuck and Omar from Fire Theft Radio fill in, Sean from SGT Report. Last week, we had Melissa from Truth Stream Media. And we have a couple more weeks of guest co-hosting happening. The next episode of Canary Cry News Talk, as of this recording, will be co-hosted by... None other than Dr. Michael Heiser. Gandalf is making an appearance on Canary Cry News Talk. Somewhat reluctantly, but after a few exchanges, I convinced him to do it. So thanks, Mike. We'll look forward to seeing you on the show. And then Josh Peck the following week is scheduled to be sitting in that co-hosting chair while Basil is gone. And then he'll be back. So in the meantime, you can check out the things that I've been publishing over at Face Like the Sun on YouTube and BitChute, by the way. Anybody interested, go check out BitChute.com. Search for Face Like the Sun. Ray Vahey, the creator of BitChute, contacted me a couple years ago and offered me to have a channel on BitChute where everything I publish on YouTube automatically goes to BitChute, which is pretty nice. I don't really have to think about it. So in any case, go over there, BitChute.com. It's a potential alternative to YouTube that's out there. But also check out... The Joyspiracy Theory, even though Basil's gone, he's publishing episodes. I don't really know how that's happening. But TJT versus Mark. You're welcome, Docorus. I'm going to think that that might be a typo, but maybe not. Spelled D-O-C-O-R-S. At the beginning of the episode, you hear him say doctors. So, I don't know. You're going to have to listen to it. The Joyspiracy Theory, TJT versus Mark. You're welcome, Docorus. Check it out. It'll bring you joy. We also have a Facebook group, Canary Cry Community, our Facebook page at Canary Cry Radio, Twitter at Canary Cry Radio, Twitch Canary Cry Radio, and that's it. I want to keep things short and brief here. Let's launch right into this discussion with Jay Dyer, author of Esoteric Hollywood. Now, what are the pillars of the Christian faith? Well, there's the pillar of truth. We have timeless truth for truthless times. We believe in truth, in absolute truth, and objective truth, and we're willing to defend it. Another pillar of our faith is God. Everything that we believe, sooner or later, goes back to God. The third pillar of our faith is miracles. Most of the objection to Christianity that comes from the modern intellectual world comes from the fact that they have bought into an anti-supernatural point of view. From the time of David Hume to the present, an anti-supernatural spell has been cast on the intelligentsia of the Western world. I believe teenagers are God's revenge on mankind. I really do. I think, I think one day the good Lord was looking down over his creation and said, let's see how they like it to create someone of their own image who denies their existence. Because I have read the Bible more than once, cover to cover, and it, it never mentions how old the devil was when he rejected God's authority. This is Canary Cry Radio. 
The scriptures say there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. This is a highly accurate description of what it's like for those who expose the esoteric deception that is rampant in entertainment media on a daily basis. The occult powers that shape our spiritual and social worldviews seem obscure and nebulous for many folks to grasp or understand, but through symbolic deconstruction of entertainment media, we can begin to see the repetitive patterns that reveal the philosophical foundations behind the visual and auditory experience of consuming media. What many like our guests today have discovered is that the most notable and memorable moments in popular film history were ostensibly used for the purposes of psychological warfare on the masses. To help us better understand what this all means, our guest today is the author of Esoteric Hollywood Volumes 1 and 2. He is the man behind jaysanalysis.com and the Jay Dyer YouTube channel where he does debates, film reviews, and analysis, often with a satirical flavor, commenting on everything from pop culture, metaphysics, literature, and history. We'd like to welcome our guest, Jay Dyer. What's up, Jay? Thank you, guys. I appreciate having me on, and, and I was just trying to get introduced introduced to y'all's material. I noticed uh, some interesting-looking documentaries that I'm about to plow into. Nice. So, oh boy. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of similar interests, so I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing, folks. If you have not checked out uh, jaysanalysis.com, you have got to do it. I was, Jay, before we uh, started recording, I was telling you, you have got to, one of the the coolest vibes on your website that I 100% support. Uh, as I was saying, I like to call it the 90s uh, stand-up jet ski vibe. Yep. Lots, you know, it's it's got that, uh, it just makes me feel at home, brings me back to the coolness of uh, the, the purple and orange sunsets and uh, some nice uh, techno <laughs> grid backgrounds. I'm the yeah, I'm the I'm the D bag on the 1985, 1990 Yamasaki jet ski with the 20 <laughs> foot uh, span of water shooting up in the air. Who's who's driving by your boat and splashing water all over you guys? <laughs> with some rad like wraparound Oakleys uh, with an orange <laughs> mirror on them. That's so funny. Uh, it makes me sad. I've. I've totally crashed a Sea-Doo, so it just brings bad memories for me. Oh, come on, man. Yeah, I just kill the vibe. <laughs> well, so, Jay, first of all, I want to introduce our listeners to kind of what you do. A lot of our listeners, you know, they, uh, they explore the different corners of YouTube that include guys like you, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with what you do. But those uh, who are not, can you give us a little bit of rundown of what your your mission is, the content you produce, yeah. and uh, kind of the vibe you're trying to bring to that uh, to that area? Well, it started with just doing film analyses a long time ago. Well, that and I had a, a blog that was that dealt with conspiracies and theology and, and movie reviews, and kind of got tired of that. So I started over with a new website that was just blogging on film. And at the time I was doing undergrad grad work and I was focusing on psychological warfare in my master's thesis. And I tied mm -hmm. that into Hollywood and 007, James Bond, and kind of how Ian Fleming used James Bond for propaganda. So then uh, I just kept blogging and blogging and blogging. I did hundreds of essays on movies and philosophy geopolitics, I started kind of expanding. Uh, and eventually it, it morphed 
morphed into doing podcasts and then that morphs yeah, the kind of the natural track everybody goes down that morphed into doing more and more videos. So eventually it kind of snowballed and it became a career about three years ago. I started doing it full time. Uh, started doing, you know, speaking engagements, doing comedy stuff, going on big comedy podcasts, meeting with some really cool people. And somebody reached out after I was on uh, Sean Stone's show and they said, do you have a book? And I said, yes, which actually I didn't. I just had a bunch of essays on movies. So I, <laughs> I just smashed them all together Close and enough. said, yes, here's a book. Uh, so I sent that to the publisher and they published that. And that led to a TV show offer to do uh one full production season of a show called Hollywood Decoded, which is based on my book, which you can stream through Amazon Prime or Gaia TV, a bunch of different outlets like that, Roku and so forth. And then that led to some other offers that are in, in the works. And then I did uh, Hollywood, Esther Hollywood 2, which is more essays. So basically, it's all over the board. It's debate, it's film, philosophy, theo, theology, theopolitics, metaphysics, the occult, esoteric, all of that wrapped into one. So I cover all those topics and I kind of get bored. So I can, that's like, I'll jump around. If I do one thing for a week, it's like, I'm really tired of talking about this. So like the next week I might just do something completely ridiculous. Uh, that's just totally weird and satirical. So I have a very weird Andy Kaufman brand of humor that I bring mm. to the table. So it's all that and more. Radical. Yeah. That, I, and, you know, I love that about you. It's kind of you, the stuff you got is really all over the place. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> especially in this sort of a niche where it's so easy to get kind of locked into one style, one, thing, one right. genre, one uh, focus, uh, which there's a lot of value in that. I'll admit, you know, specializing. That's how, uh, you know, we got to be where we're at mm -hmm. um, as a species. But, uh, yeah. The, you've certainly got a, a wide range of things, you know, de, no matter what you're looking for at the time, uh, Jay's got something to fit your mood. I do. And I cover all kinds of good movies, bad movies, uh, you know, B movies, you name it. Like uh, my, my last favorite B movie, I think, was Mac and Me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I haven't a, seen it, but I, I know what oh, movie it is. It's yeah, and and I did Maximum Overdrive, which is which is pretty funny if you've never seen Maximum. Nice, and maybe that might be a good place to start, Gons, unless you got somewhere else. No, but, um, go for it. You know, I I see a lot of movies, and uh, we don't necessarily focus on individual movies and kind of break them down. I mean, we'll we'll do like a big episode on predictive programming, in yeah. which we'll bring a lot of different examples. Um, but over on our Patreon, you know, we do bonus stuff, and usually when I see a movie, that's uh, our bonus episodes are usually where I get to just sit and go through. Um, at least give a rundown of whatever new movies out and the, the sort of obvious symbolism that comes in there. Right. Um, and you certainly put a lot more production value into what you do. But one of the most recent ones that I think might just be a fun jumping off point, uh, was Aladdin and, um, just cruising down your website here. I do see that you've got the weird, uh, Will Smith blue genie face, have you uh, gone in? Did you see Aladdin? No, no. The only reason we put that, what I do sometimes on when we do Boiler Room, which is a, a show with a, with a bunch of different people. We had Aaron and Melissa Dykes on that episode last night. 
it was a lot of fun. And it, a lot of times I stick the pictures up that are just ridiculous. They don't have anything to do. <laughs> the reason that the, the blue, that Smurf, Will Smurf is there. I call oh, good. good. The reason one. Will Smurf is there is because we were talking about the idiocy of transhumanism, the idea that you're going to like down your, download yourself into uh, a zip drive, basically. And I was just making the point that if I get downloaded into a zip drive, which I don't think will actually happen, but if I was downloaded into a zip drive, I want it to be in the shape of of a lamp, uh, like an Aladdin's lamp. And that oh, way, nice. That way, that way, genies will be real because you can just you can evoke me from from your zip drive, and, and all the mythologies, Jay. yeah, all the mythologies will be real. There we go. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know, I don't need to dive too much into it, but one of the interesting things—it's uh, funny you bring up transhumanism in regard to that because uh, they changed—they changed the story around a little bit. And here's a, an Aladdin spoiler for everybody, so you can skip ahead a couple seconds if you want. But um, you know, the whole thing was genie wants to be a human. And right. so it kind of had this weird reverse transhumanism uh, aspect to it. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting when we kind of do some light uh, media criticism uh, into some of the stuff coming out. There's oftentimes uh, a little bit of a reversal that comes into the movie uh, compared to how we see a. a a big trend in the world towards transhumanism and the benefits thereof. Mm -hmm. And I've always find it interesting when uh, a movie does a reversal on that. And I find myself, uh, you know, one considering myself, you know, so woke to the transhuman agenda. And when <laughs> right. I see it reversed like that, I even find myself being like, Jeannie, why would you want to be a human, man? You're going backwards. Mm. And that's when uh, I see the mind control really taking hold. Yeah, I think one of the things I covered in Esoteric Hollywood 1 was the way that for a long time in the propaganda and film, they've been reversing things like that. And they've, they've actually been typically dehumanizing humans and then humanizing the bots. I mean, one of the first right. films I did, a, a big long analysis of was Spielberg's AI. If you think back to AI, that's the whole plot. It's a fairy tale. It's it's a retelling of Pinocchio where the salvific figure, who's the beginning of a new race of beings. If you remember, that's the David character. He, be, he becomes the, the beginning of this new race of they're basically aliens that are also uh, AI. Right. So he's a new Adam character, basically. Uh, and then his brother that he's always fighting with, where you have this kind of Cain Abel type of story, the the, the brother, Martin, is a complete D-bag. He's awful. Uh, and, of course, he's got his, like, he can't walk, so he's crippled, which showing that, you know, he's disfigured, he's old humanity. The idea being, of course, that, that through transhumanist mythology, uh, there will be a new race of beings. And that's, that's the whole point of that movie is to uh, make humans more bot-like and bots more human-like. And in the process, kind of present a new Gnostic Luciferian type of gospel. So that's one thing I focused on quite a bit in book one, especially in the AI analysis. And they even had the sex bots in there, too. I mean, I, I know that goes all the way back to Blade Runner, but, you know, on many levels, we're getting sort of the, the programming 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago that we're seeing introduced into reality. Now you can watch it 20, 30 years ago in the movies. Right. Movies like Ex Machina, which came out in 2014. Right. Do you think there are people out there, really wealthy people that just, you know, go out into the mountains and, and create a cave and start doing experiments with AI? And do you think they've 
achieved anything that's uh, notable or would be notable to the rest of the world that's just being hidden? Uh, yeah, Mark Bucker, Buckerberg. Buckerberg. <laughs> Buckerberg. <laughs> um, uh, he seems to be a bot. <laughs> yeah, we, we've totally been critical of uh, of Zuckerberg's uh, virtual yeah, yeah. whole thing. Yeah, lizard I, person I'm, I'm or AI. Yeah. <laughs> The plot of Ex Machina, which I did put in Esoteric Hollywood too. There's a chapter on Ex Machina in there. I think that's entirely plausible. I don't know if there's a real specific example, but uh, who knows what's going on <laughs> in Plasticine Valley. Uh, Plasticine so Valley. So I don't trigger any algorithms here by saying uh, the S word. Yeah, wow, there you go. It's, <laughs> you're on uh, top of it, man. If you remember, there's a Bond movie, since I did so much Bond research for grad work. Do you remember View to a Kill? I do not. I'm not a very Rem good movie guy, so Basil's going to okay. have to like, like, just yeah, remind us. Okay. So if you go I'm, back yeah. to the 1987 View to a Kill, which is the last Roger Moore Bond movie, you will find a tremendous amount of predictive programming there with the Christopher Walken character, who is in fact oh, right. a eugenicist who basically wants to destroy Silicon Valley because he's controlling Silicon Valley. He's like the Zuckerberg of his day, I guess. Right. Uh, and he basically wants to run everything by destroying everything. So he's got like a breakaway civilization model going on. And of oh, course, Roger gosh. Moore saves everybody. But but uh, even back as far as 87 with a view to a kill, they were they were predicting the power of Silicon Valley. Um, I don't think there's AI per se, but there is definitely the idea of genetically modifying with technology. Uh, you know, basically breeding some kind of new version of humanity. That's the that's the whole ethos of uh, Zorn. I th that's his name. The the, <laughs> the ridiculous Zorn. Zorn Industries is is doing this basically. Is that Sanford? Z for Zuckerberg? That's uh, oh, called it <laughs> there out. You go. Coming for you, lizard man. Now here's the thing. I think you go into this quite a bit, and it's something that I'm endlessly fascinated with, and that is in, in media communication in all sorts of. Uh, forms and shapes, you know, communication really happens in the realm of symbolism, symbols, signs, sigils, things like that, and placing those in advantageous places for, for whatever manipulation you're trying to uh, achieve on your audience there. And I have to imagine uh, in your, you know, academic realms, that's a big mm -hmm. part of it. I know when I was um, doing my scholarly studies, you know, that was, that was the main language of Hollywood. And, uh, so when you dive into that kind of stuff, I mean, are there are trends and things that you're able to pick out and how much does that, uh, inform the work that you do? Quite a bit. I mean, that's, you know, the book is titled Esoteric Hollywood and, and the first chapter is film as a ritual. So I actually considered it from a dramaturgical perspective because yeah. in, the ancient, in the ancient world when they would do plays they were at least by their intention trying to invoke the gods that was the purpose of the plays it was a reenactment of the stories of the gods so i went from that perspective because most modern film analysis and theory does not come from that perspective totally they want to talk about the lighting and they're going to talk about uh, some boring ass technical thing that who cares because what really matters is the meaning of the stories. Not the, I mean, I it's okay if you want to talk about the technological 
advances and the lighting and the film and all that. That stuff's neat. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I'm, I'm more interested in the symbolic and hidden aspects, the code behind the film. And so I start with uh, kind of as a springboard in my book, Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon, which doesn't really have uh, a lot of similarity in my book, except in the fact that in the first chapter, he starts by talking about Hollywood as the new Babylon and the gate of the gods. Uh, and so that's the jumping point from which I move into my film analysis. And the rest of his book is like a bunch of people that nobody even remembers, like W.C. Fields and all these old 30s era Hollywood people that are dead. Totally. Um, so then I move into kind of the Kubrick, the Lynch, the Spielberg, the the Hitchcock, uh, 007. That's that's where I went with 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 my book. And I just picked apart um, probably... I mean, it, it took a lot of time. It took a, it was a lot of essays, a lot of hours went into it. There's, there's 404 footnotes, 363 pages, 404 footnotes. So, so I don't come at this from a, I think a lot of people thought that it was going to be, Oh, you're just going to like pick out every movie that has an all seeing eye in it. Right. Right. Everybody's no, that's not what I do. What I do is more of a literary analysis. Like if you had a college class where you talked about uh, Dostoevsky or Flannery O'Connor novels. What I do is the same type of close reading that you would do in a college class with film. And the idea that. for doing that was, uh, you know, I, I, I've always liked movies and I got kind of bored with the typical movie review, whether you're reading Ebert or, you know, the Rolling Stone guy or whatever, like that kind of style of, of movie review is kind of boring to me. So what I want to do was integrate film analysis on multiple levels so it's more of, again, like a literary reading of the movie with, you know, iconographic imagery uh, that's, again, multiple, functioning on multiple levels. So sometimes I'm interested in, you know, does this movie have a ritual aspect like it's right. like 2001 or Eyes Wide Shut? I think Kubrick is intentionally trying to give us a ritual initiation. Uh, if it's a 007 movie, there is sometimes esoteric elements to 007 films, um, which... Uh, is reflected in in Fleming's novels. But typically, uh, if it's something like that, what I'm interested in is the real-world geopolitics that might have gone into why Ian Fleming wrote that story or the propaganda. So a lot of different levels going on. Um, It just depends on the topic. And sometimes they even throw in weird 80s movies like Labyrinth, uh, NeverEnding Story, Legend, these kinds of weird things. So what you notice in terms of patterns is that certain directors seem to have a really keyed in consistent approach to making esoteric films, you know, people like Kubrick, people like David Lynch, people like to a degree Spielberg, um, you know, who else? Well, I think that, that brings up a good point, which is, you know, it's really easy. YouTube is full of them to go through a movie and pick out in, you know, specific symbols. Like you said, the all seeing eye or like a checkerboard floor or something like that. Um, and that's all over the place. And while that, uh, is valuable for, uh, maybe starting a breadcrumb trail into sort of the right. esoteric, esoteric, uh, backgrounds of, of, some of the films, what you said really sparked something in me, which is, you know, when you talk about, uh, occultism or, or esoteric practices or mystery schools or magic or whatever, you know, there's a few things that really, 
uh, are important to a successful practice, if you will. And a lot of that is repetition. A lot of that is pulling on uh, mythic um, storylines or uh, mythic uh, kind of like you said, playing through mythology as well as, you know, gaining as much psychic attention on what you are trying to do, whether you call it an incantation or a spell or something like that. So, you know, that kind of stuff is all involved in the playing out of these sort of occult practices. And not only can you just find symbols in these pieces of work, but the pieces of work themselves are, you know, part of an active practice in in some cases. Uh, And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? With when you find uh, filmmakers who repeatedly play these sorts of things out is the implication there that, uh, you know, by watching these movies or something, it's, it's, uh, giving power to perhaps what, uh, whatever occult purposes they may have, uh, intended. Yeah, that's one aspect for sure. And it, it, it just depends kind of on the director, on the film, on the purpose of the film, a lot of different possibilities there, but my second chapter in the book is called Occult Empire, where I go into how you could look at the occult as something where you're intending to ritually charge things, where you're intending to alter people's perceptions, where you're intending to influence people's subconscious. All those things are all essentially trying to do the same thing, and thus you could see the similarity to psychological warfare, because psychological warfare wants to do the same thing. You know, Like Sun Tzu said a long time ago, you want to influence the enemy's mind and if you can win the enemy in the over in the mind arena you don't have to uh you know get killed in the process right right save your troops and it's better for everybody in the long run from that perspective and so there's a lot of different aspects to which film has functioned um on multiple levels as propaganda uh as a kind of spell you can put put a spell on people through film Hence, yeah. film as ritual, and hence Hollywood as the occult empire. And you need look no further than the fact, again, that a lot of directors have been involved in the occult. A lot of directors, producers, Hollywood moguls have been in secret societies of various types and flavors. A lot of A-listers have been in all those different uh, arenas. And at the same time, many of them have also been spies. They've also worked for intelligence agencies, right. uh, different different national intelligence agencies, different mafia groups. So what I did, and since I talked about a lot of that in part one, I felt like I left out the mafia, which is a huge aspect to, <laughs> to Hollywood. So the, the first part of Esther Hollywood 2 deals with the mafia side of things. So there's all of this really fascinating interconnection that most people don't think about when they think about Hollywood. You know, they, they might think about one side of things like, oh, did you hear that uh, Jimmy Stewart at one time was a FBI informant? No, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, maybe that's why he was in the movie called The FBI Story, where he plays an FBI hero. (laughs) So you start to see these parallels where people actually sometimes, not always, but sometimes they'll choose a role or they'll play a role in a film that actually kind of reflects what might be going on in real life. Right. Yeah. Have you... Sorry, guns oh, no, go there. If you had some to add, well, I was going to jump over. I need to know: Have you heard of the film uh, Robot Jocks? <laughs> Is, Is that night- the eighties movie? Yes, oh, well, I gosh. watched it in the eighties. Yeah, released in nineteen ninety, okay, and no. it is my favorite. Uh, sort of B list. Uh, well, I mean, maybe one of my favorite movies ever. Mm. Uh, 
um, just for all the wrong reasons. Um, but it's, it's a movie I can't stop talking about. And I don't know, man, I might need to, uh, make a donation or something to have you, uh, take a look at that. And, <laughs> it's right and up your alley. Uh, the, some, the some tail. core brainwashing there in, in, wow. in my own story. <laughs> well, I'll, yeah, I'll have to go back and watch that one. I do remember as a kid renting the VHS. So like we would, we would go to this place that had, Back in like 1989, 90, there was like one VHS store near us. And um, I think DVD was was pretty new at that time. It was just mm, coming out. Yeah. But I don't think our store had DVD. So they had these little color-coded things where <laughs> where you could... St- I'm not kidding. Like still in 80 to 89, 90, you could still rent Betamax. And oh, wow. <laughs> my dad was such a cheapo that, that uh, he wouldn't get a, v- a VHS player. He still had the Betamax, like even up into the 90s. Wow. So when we went to the movie store, we had to pick all of the movies that had the color coded, like the red. If it was a red, <laughs> if there was a red code, then I could watch it because they had a Betamax version. Of it. <laughs> uh, so I, I do specifically remember watching Robot Jocks in Betamax, but I don't remember wow. anything other than it's what, like kids, kind of a Voltron thing where they're in, is it have to be with. Yeah, it's got some like uh, robots, right? Right. There's no more war. You uh, geopolitics is settled with one-on-one giant robot battles, (laughs) and of course, uh, Russia is the enemy. And uh, there's a little bit of genetic, um, uh, you know, transhumanism involved. There's all sorts of stuff there. But they lay it out pretty early in the film too. I was very surprised. You didn't let me watch Basil. I, I watched like the first ten minutes. And you stopped me because we were going to try to I wanted, watch it. Yeah, we got to do it together. Yeah. It's going to be a special, a special moment. Yeah. I did, you know, in part two, <laughs> I did cover some of those 80s movies that had a lot of predictive programming like that. Like, do you remember Running Man? I, I never don't. saw Running Man. Oh, man, you guys are missing out, man. That's a Running Man with, with Arnold uh, has, oh. I mean, it, it's it's almost like every old movie that you find has at least one element that will blow your mind about where society would be. Um, so actually the, the, the most, well, there's two scenes that really stick out in running man, but, and it's kind of a B movie, but it, it does kind of accurately picture the way we, we view entertainment in, in our day. But the other thing that really stands out is that Arnold, uh, he, he orders his plane ticket on the internet. Uh, this is 1987. I don't yeah. think most people knew what the internet was. unless you were impressive. Like, yeah, but he, he goes on this thing called the InfoNet, and he orders his plane tickets, and he, he's trying to get out of the country. And then there's another scene where they completely CGI. It's actually Je- Jesse Ventura in the scene, but they completely CGI an event to frame Arnold. Oh, some deep it's, fake it's stuff. Exactly. Some totally deep fake stuff. Um, and, and that, of course, turns the whole society against Arnold. And the whole plot is basically a Hunger Games type of thing. So he he's on the run. Uh, everybody's enjoying this kind of Hunger Games uh, scenario, which, by the way, um, Survivor, these kinds of, that's preparing us for what is going to come. They're actually going to eventually have these kind of global gladiatorial chase games. Uh, I'm not kidding. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things I do at my website is what's called a globalism books talk, where I go through the top writings of the the, the global elite. Um, I think we've done 28 or 29 of those now. And basically, I, I lecture on the first half of the book. And then if you want the full lecture, you subscribe to my website. Well, one of those that I did was Jacques Attali's book, Brief History of the Future. And he's the Kissinger of France. He's kind of like uh, Holland, Mitterrand, uh, kind of handler type of guy. A total globalist dude. And so in 2006, he wrote this book saying 
everything that we're seeing now. So he said by 2020, everybody will be watching live streaming. Um, it will be global eventually. Uh, and there will be eventually gladiatorial games. So Hunger Games, Running Man, that's what's coming. Yeah, and that's even crazy. in the uh, even in the realm of gaming, you know, I mean, yes. first off, streaming, you know, that's a huge part of gaming nowadays. Um, but also the new genre that kind of popped up just in the past couple of years, which when I was a kid, uh, you know, me and my friends basically just were wishing that this genre existed, and that's battle royale. Which is, uh, you know, your Fortnites, your Player Unknown Underground, your uh, Apex Legends, stuff like that, which is basically right. one game with like uh, up to a hundred players all in the same arena, which is uh, only recently just did the network technology exist to, to connect that many people in one game server. And they just battle it out, start with a hundred and last <laughs> man standing type thing. And it is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, it's huge in the world of gaming. And that's just kind of what we're talking about. It's basically a Hunger Games thing. So you're dropped in with nothing. You run around, try to find supplies, and then last man standing wins. So even the kids, you know, talking about a worldwide gladi gladiatorial sport, um, it's, I mean, it's basically happening now just in a virtual yeah. sense. For wherever <laughs> you are, I something something yeah, something was, something. I got lost thinking about Celine and her. By the way, I'm sure you saw her uh, pretty satanic fashion line that she came out with. The was that the oh, one yeah, for the kids? Right. Yes, yeah, for the children's kids. fashion yeah. line. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. New World Order death fashion for kids. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's but, so? Uh, I did want to add real quick though that yeah uh, sure. Um, on that last point you made, if you remember, do you remember Tron? Yes. Yeah, of course. And that's another one where, uh, you know, obviously it's kind of a predecessor to the matrix, but with Tron, you, you have, it's, it's the gamification of society. Basically everything becomes gamified. Yeah. So what will happen is that economies and electronic cash, I'm, I'm not saying all crypto is bad, by the way, I'm, I, I do think crypto has potential, but the, um, uh, electronification of everything and the gamification of everything is something that the big tech elite have, elite have been giving lectures on uh, recently. They've been talking about this a lot and that's ultimately to merge gaming and economy together. Totally. Uh, yep. And that's where we're going. So you're yeah, absolutely right totally. to look at uh, games and gaming and Tron was actually predicting this where the, where the new reality, which is the virtual. So the synthetic will replace the real and it will be fun. It will be centered around gaming. Yep, and there's there's actual Tron uh, cryptocurrency company, or I exactly. guess it's a, a currency That's slash a a smart contract thing. Yeah. Um, I, Don't I worry, guys. Yeah. I'm I'm staying practiced up. I'll be your sugar daddy in the next uh, gamified economy. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. I got right. you, bro. Great. Um, I, I wanted to touch back on like uh, some of the movies that I don't know if you've ever touched on it, but th this is a film I've never really brought it up because it's it's so bizarre and I don't really know what to do with it. Uh, but it's a movie called The Holy Mountain. It mm. was released in 1973 by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Right. And it is like the most, it is just, I don't even mm -hmm. know how to, it's, it's just, you were talking about like ritual as film, but yes. I mean, this is just like a, not even just a blatant, it's just a, a next level 
type of uh, film right. that I don't think people should watch necessarily unless they're doing analysis on it or breaking things down. But even then it's like, Oh my goodness. Yeah, it is difficult. Right. Uh, I'm very yeah. familiar. I've, I've seen it a couple of times. And, and one reason I've refrained is just because it is kind of a, a grueling watch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but both that and El Topo are definitely pretty hardcore hermetic films. Right. I think uh, with Jodorowsky, he has a lot of Sufi and Gnostic influence. So you're looking at basically a ritual on film that is, um, alchemy more or less. Yeah. Um, but in the midst of that alchemical hermetic Gnostic presentation, you do have some pr predictive programming. For example, you have the idea of the the sex machines, um, you have the idea of the, um, there's a really powerful scene where they show the coffin apartments that are coming, like in the future when there's these very regimented green agenda 2030 type cities, mm. they basically live in a smart city and you live in a coffin, like your, your home is literally a coffin. And so there's a very uh, powerful prediction there on the part of Jodorowsky of, of what's to come in the, the dystopian megacities, which I do have a couple chapters that deal with dystopian megacities as well. Um, and I think that, I mean, it's not that necessarily he was doing rituals and could see the future. I could, that's possible. I think sometimes there is potential for that, especially in the arts, the arts can, can have a literal predictive component to them. But on the case, in the case of Jurowski, he was probably hanging out with elites who were telling him what they were going to do in the same way that right. Philip K. Dick was in the circles of the Silicon Valley elite. Um, so what he's writing in Ubik and, uh, you know, some of his other essays, the reason his films are so, or his short stories, which become films, obviously minority report, so forth, uh, you know, Blade Runner, the reason they're so powerful is because he knew what Silicon Valley was, was planning. Right. And it's the exact same with, with probably Jodorowsky in, in those elite circles. Yeah, there's a there's a description of the plot that's from uh, 366 Weird Movies. Mm -hmm. And just the first line, it says, A thief who looks like Jesus Christ silently wanders through a bizarre and depraved city where an armless and legless midget companion participating in a lizard circus where toads are dressed like conquistadors bearing a crucifix through the streets and eating from mm -hmm. Jesus's body and meeting a prostitute with a chimp. Uh, there's an anti- Very Crowleyan. <laughs> yeah. Very Crowleyan. There's an anti-Christ- element to yes, it and absolutely. I, I wanted to hear your comments on that because uh this is deliberate but then you know i, th I feel like because basil brought up earlier how they flipped the script kind of with the transhumanist uh thing right. kind of championing championing the human in a sense uh, or at least creating that relative element what are your thoughts on the thematic approaches to using the antichrist uh perspective in films like holy mountain but then in all of your uh, analysis yeah, there's a whole bunch of films in that vein that are that have a similar aesthetic and a similar antichrist type of spirit. There's the, the Devils of Loudon. That that film's pretty gruesome in the same way. I always forget that the there's the Armenian filmmaker who was a Soviet filmmaker who did Garden of Pomegranates. It's in the it's, it's, it's the same type of look and feel. Um, have you seen that? No. It's the same type of <laughs> totally uh, not in um, tune with some. Guns has a two year old, so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Not, right. Well, I'm, you're not you're not missing much, but it's just really bizarre. Um, actually, what made that film famous in part was that uh, the techno band Juno Reactor used Garden of Pomegranates in their their video. But anyway, um, yeah, Jodorowsky is consciously using the satanic and antichrist imagery for multiple reasons. I mean, he probably sees the the film as ritual. He probably sees it as I think he's really into poetry, if I recall. I mean, I haven't read about him in a long time, but 
Uh, so he probably, he probably sees it like a poetic presentation of symbolic, non-linear imagery. Uh, so, I mean, it is telling a story, but it's not telling a, a linear story. And much of the, the esoteric and the occult is focused on the cyclical eternal return, these kinds of ideas that come out of Nietzsche and, and ancient Greek paganism and so forth, ancient Hinduism. So there's all that going on. And, and then with the transhumanist element, it, it's there's the tendency to see it as both a potential for, I mean, I think they see it as power. Like, in other words, uh, transhumanism could be a means by which the elite attain godhood and a means by which the elite enslave others. Right. Uh, it's just a question of how that power is used. That's from their perspective, right? So yeah. um, I don't think that Jodorowsky is necessarily presenting some anti-transhumanist message. Um, I think that as with all of the transhumanists, they probably, or, or excuse me, all the occultists, they believe that there's the potential for uh, something to be used for good or evil. So right. that's probably the way he views it. Right, right. Yeah, the whole duality concept and everything. Exactly. Um, touching back to the gamification concept, I, I don't know how real this, uh, this story was, but it came out, I think, in April of this year, 2019. And one of the headlines was, A hunt is on for Satoshi's treasure, a one million Bitcoin prize. And there's this uh, pretty cryptic thing called Satoshi's treasure. You can go to the website and start mm. you know, figuring out different, uh, they give you geostationary orbit keys and you got to figure out, you know, unlock it and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if anyone's made any progress with it, but that sort of thing where, again, it blurs the line between, is this a game or are we, are we literally, uh, fighting for our lives for, you know, whatever, finding hundred Bitcoin or whatever, or a million Bitcoin. So yeah, I, I think it's, uh, and again, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if it's caught steam, but you can totally see these feelers are being put out there and, as we move along, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what players uh, will be staging right. some of this stuff, right? Like I could picture a guy like Elon Musk, you know, putting together some kind of giant, you know, gamified thing where it's mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of blurring the line between uh, just playing a game and for like a you know game show winning a thing or whatever. But anyway, what types of uh, platforms do you see as a potential for some of those? those elements specifically like do you see amazon do you see facebook who do you think or do you think it's going to be some something out of crypto what do you see there well i'm a bitcoin zillionaire so you could go watch my video <laughs> bitcoin zillionaire where i actually tell you the formula of how also yourself to become a bitcoin zillionaire it involves basically buying slums and then selling them for pesos and then you get into the peso market and then you sell the pesos for overpriced and then you buy bitcoin so uh it's a foolproof method um uh, it's a very it's one of my favorite videos that i've made and it's a bitcoin zillionaire so if you want to learn how to become a bitcoin out. zillionaire uh it's all very legal on the up and up you can go watch my video bitcoin zillionaire I'm being, I'm being silly. That is a real video I made, but I know I'm looking at it right now and you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's the potential for any of these tech companies to be the forerunner in that kind of a corporate overlord Wayland Utani corporation future that we're going into. Um, you know, whether it's Blade Runner or Alien, it's pretty much, you know, the, those movies are telling us that uh, I, I, one thing I like about those is that there's, there's one big corporation that runs everything in the future. Right. And, yeah, you know, I, I remember that being it. a theme even growing up, like yeah, the, exactly. the giant evil corporation. And Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, in my Blade Runner analysis, I really focused in on that, that we were kind of being prepped for that, like almost like 
uh, it's inevitable. Like you have to have one giant corporation. It's just inevitable because all the science fiction movies showed you that you're going to have one corporation running everything. But um, it could be any of them. But and that's because uh, I don't really think at the top these companies are in competition. I think they're essentially creations of the military industrial complex. They're allowed okay. to compete for a while at a certain level. But at the tip top, you'll notice it's just a revolving door between government and the heads of these companies. And one person goes from Bilderberg to DARPA to head of whatever, uh, uh, Google, whatever, doesn't matter. They're all they're all kind of the same. Yeah. The people that create the AI for uh, Apple are the people who worked at DARPA. So it doesn't matter. Uh, they're all the same. And... If if one of them dies, it's kind of like Enron. So what? Uh, there's a mini headed headed Hydra. <laughs> you just top, chop one head off, and then uh, you know another Enron pops up. Right. So they don't really care. And and I think that when you look at the global agenda going forward, and and you see that it is global, and that it's the Fortune 100 that promote all the same stuff across the board, you start to realize that at that level, there's not really competition. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because. One of the sentiments you often hear in the the world of cryptocurrencies is that we're you know decentralizing from these central governments and central corporations, and we're putting power back into the hands of the people, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a very enticing libertarian type of a message. Um, at the same time, you know, I, and I understand that perspective, but at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, but you're doing it through this like very limited technology that they are essentially giving us, you know, allowing mm-hmm. us to use. So can't get right. too excited about it. But speaking of like prophecies and stuff, I don't know how much of uh, you know, prophetic type of uh, analysis you do in terms of the Bible and how it might relate to things going on around us. But do you see any uh, relationship there with, you know, perhaps the mark of the beast and the image of the beast as it relates mm-hmm. to some of these things we're talking about? Uh, I do. I have uh, a series of talks that I did um, on biblical theology, philosophy, et cetera, which I just kind of set aside as a playlist on my channel. But um, I don't. Uh, I have a talk on Daniel, for example, the book of Daniel. Um, I'm I'm not convinced yet that w- that we're necessarily in the final final end days, but I definitely think that at the least we're seeing patterns in history where we, you know, as John says in his epistle, there are many antichrists. Right. So um, whether or not this is the final end days, uh, it is at least still the pattern of what you see in the apocalypse. So I think a lot of what's in the apocalypse was referring to the first century in terms of what John was describing about the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see that specifically when John talks about uh, Nero's name being 666, that actually translates to Nero very well. I'm not saying that it's only fulfilled in 70 AD um, in the first century. I think that there's a mirror pattern. If you look at Daniel and Jeremiah, you see that same pattern of mirroring where Daniel says that he understood when the uh, defiling of the temple in his day, uh, excuse me, in the future would happen when uh, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes would defile the temple under the Maccabees. Daniel predicts that several hundred years ahead of time, he says, based on reading Jeremiah. So the original 586 BC um, defiling of the temple by the Babylonians was a pattern that would reoccur uh, during the time of the Maccabees, which if you have the Orthodox Bible, then you know what Maccabees is. That's a uh, one of the books that the Protestants uh, did not include in their canon. Right, in between anyway, phase, so, yeah. Correct. So it's the, the um, 
intertestamental period. And right. so then what happens in 70 AD, if you look at Luke 21 and Matthew 24, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, he says that the apostles will see this event, the one standing there in front of him. This is actually what happened in 70 AD when the, the Romans destroyed the temple. So this is a mirrored pattern that goes again from 586 with the destruction of the temple to the time of the Maccabees where it's destroyed again. There's another defiling that happens uh, under Ptolemy, which is third Maccabees. And then there's another defiling destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, which I think the Apocalypse and the Olivet Discourse talks about. That being said, what I believe we're going to see and what most of the Church Fathers said about this was that there will be mirroring of this in history. Uh, so you will see the rise, the same sort of trend towards Babel, towards the world, you know, kind of trying to unify under this banner of, of anti-God sentiment, this kind of anti-Christ sentiment that you're talking about. Um, you're going to see the attempt to try to have uh, a unified global currency and all these these types of things. Um, and so I would say that if we do see more of the prophetic events very clearly being fulfilled, then I would go ahead and say, yeah, we are in the last days. I'm just hesitant to adopt that kind of attitude to, uh, so that we don't become, <laughs> so that we don't become like fatalistic, you know, like, oh, well, it's all screwed from here on out. It's all right. over next week. It's, it's all over. So, yeah. yeah. So I think we still have a duty to promote, you know, good things in culture, uh, and not, not sort of surrender culture to, you know, the rapture and this kind of nonsense, right. in my view. Uh, so, but yes, when it comes to the spirit of Antichrist, uh, the move towards everything being controlled, tracked, traced, uh, absolutely. It's totally the spirit of Antichrist. Yeah, it's really fascinating because I, I do see in Revelation a lot of restoration that takes place immediately after a kind of a judgment, like a hardcore judgment. Uh, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, illusion and stuff like that there, but um, in terms of, yeah, you know, it's almost like we've, we've talked about this before on the, on the podcast where it's becoming difficult to tell if it's self-fulfilling prophecy or if it's like actually prophecy that's starting to look like being fulfilled. Again, we're not saying it's we're in the end now, uh, things can go on for several decades, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps centuries. We don't know. <laughs> but, uh, we've at least got several decades, at least several decades. <laughs> uh, well, well just to have, yeah, the, the global controlled currency. I mean, the, 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 just even the infrastructure is not yet there for that. Right, so exactly. You, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So th there's definitely a lot of work to be done in that regard if we're going to really see right. a whole lockdown that is sort of seems to be described there. But um, yeah, I like your, like your kind of stance on it and your position on it. I don't think it's a, a bad place to be, especially because you know, this uh, again, what are we going to do? We're going to set a date for next year or like Basil <laughs> did back in 2012 uh, and, you know, just just uh, run back with our tails between our legs? Or well, gonna... did you know that Terrence McKenna is the first person to talk about 2012 is the time when the Mayan <laughs> calendar was going to be the end of the world? <laughs> and if you just listen to the spirit of the mushroom, then you would understand. <laughs> Terrence McKenna, 2020. <laughs> there is, is that his new call, 2020? I was oh. just like he was going to run in 20. Yeah, I, it was it. a joke I made a long time ago about who are you. Somebody said, "Who are you voting for in 2020?" I said, uh, "Terrence I'm McKinnon. for Terrence McKinnon, the mushroom, <laughs> mushroom for VP." You know, here's I'm going to move forward just a little bit here, Jay. And, By the way, he is, if I recall, he's the first person to talk about 2012 in the Mayan calendar. Did you know that? Well, that I did kind of know. Okay. Um, I didn't know if he was officially the first person, but he was. Well, kind maybe of somebody did. Maybe the Mayans did. <laughs> Mayans, yeah, Mayans <laughs> that themselves. That makes sense. 
So you cover a lot of different stuff in a lot of different ways. I got a question for you, which is, you know, in everything that you do and the people you talk to, whether it's uh, on air or off, what is a question that you wish more people were asking? Did I stump you? You did. I was, you threw me for a loop there because usually the questions are always the same. That's a good. That, that's a good question. If you threw me for a loop, um, I did a podcast with a guy uh, that was all practical stuff. That was interesting Ooh, because I like that. Time, yeah, like like what do you do when you wake up? Like, what's your favorite book? Uh, what do you recommend young men do? Uh, mm. Should you start a business or get a job? You know, a lot of weird kind of practical question. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was a really cool podcast because I wasn't used to that. I was so used to the, you know, what's the meaning of this, uh, I'll sing on this movie. Why is there? Sure. Yeah. But, uh, so those were good questions, but I don't know, man, I just, I've really been enjoying the ability to integrate a lot more comedy. And so I kind of wish people would branch out into talking about comedic topics because I do it a lot. I talk about it a lot. I do a lot of impersonations, a lot of voices and people do appreciate that and they talk about it, but it's like everybody wants to talk about all the serious dark stuff all the time, which I don't <laughs> mind. It's just that, you know what I mean? Like after you've, you've blogged totally. on this topic, you blogged on this topic for like 11 years, you know, you kind of want to talk about and do other stuff. So, um, I totally get it, you know, and that's, that's a thing that, uh, you know, I have another podcast that kind of addresses that a little mm -hmm. bit, um, called the joy spiracy theory. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was at a point where, you know, it got so deep into this stuff and, you know, mm -hmm. after a while it kind of starts to, I mean, it's just cycles, cycles just of different stuff to be paying attention to. And it's uh, all very, yeah. I mean, how many times can we talk about butt sex magic? You know what I mean? It's like after a while, it's like, I'm really tired of talking about butts and spiritual powers coming out of butts. And it's like, come on, something else. it's kind of gross, dude. So, so like, let's talk about Andy Kaufman. You're like what's Andy Kaufman's funniest bit, you know, something like this. <laughs> what is Andy Kaufman's funniest bit? I think the funniest one, and this is, was, I used to do stand up, and this is what inspired me. Um, I'll tell you a quick funny story. So, Andy Kaufman did this thing where a lot of people know about it. You probably heard about it, but he went to a college uh, when he was touring and he did a stand up bit where he, he walked out with this ascot and like a fancy suit and a pipe, and, and he sat in this fancy chair and he started reading The Great Gatsby. <laughs> and, you know, everybody was there for Andy Kaufman to do comedy. Right. And he just literally just starts reading from page one. And he's, so he gets like five pages in and people realize, oh, ha, 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 you got us. Uh -huh. um, and so they laugh and he keeps going. <laughs> and he just keeps going and he keeps going. So Andy Kaufman is the original troll. Right. So, yeah. so eventually the crowd gets furious. They're literally throwing tomatoes right um so he's like okay 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 so he walks off stage briefly and then he, he rolls out a record player and he says okay okay it's time to move on and so he moves the microphone over by the phonograph and he puts a record on and it's a record of him reading the great <laughs> <laughs> and so everybody dies laughing and then he just kind of lets it go so um so i got inspired one time and i went to a uh, a very it was a kind of a liberal setting and I took Cole Rove's autobiography, uh, which I thought, what's the most boring pseudo-conservative book I could even think of? Well, it would mm. be Cole Rove's biography. So I took it, and I just started reading Cole Rove's biography. Um, I didn't have the, the same response. It, it was a little snickering <laughs> at first. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, that was fun. I, didn't, I, I mimicked 
Andy Kaufman there on that. There one. you but, go. And it's, uh, hey, it worked out for him. Why not? And so, I mean, there's a lot of power. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of power in doing something different, mm-hmm. and uh, not just. I mean not just for other people to make whatever new content or whatever, but also to keep yourself engaged in, in what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's much more exactly fun and fulfilling to do something obviously that you enjoy doing. Um, but especially keeping a light heart about stuff. Uh, I, I think that uh, integrating comedy, you know, what you could say integrating comedy into the sort of, education about this stuff and spreading the word and that kind of stuff. And, and certainly there's, there's value to that. Um, there's, there's an interesting way in which comedians just historically have been sort of the deliverers of truth. You know, they can, they can kind of speak truths and stay kind of, uh, in the realm of, Hey, it's just a joke or it's just a story. And they don't have that same kind of accountability as, uh, Although you know, people guy. are catching on to that and they're, they're starting to crack down on, on right. comedy. Right. Yeah. That's, I have noticed that. But for me, yeah, you're right. Um, and it was just natural because what, what happens is when you do this kind of stuff, there's a kind of a transition that you go through where you start out when you do this kind of stuff and you just kind of want to read the facts. And then over time you kind of let open more and more of your personality to your audience. And that's, I used to be afraid of that, but I, that's actually a good thing. It's a, it's a, necessary thing because the way media works now is people are interested in people. Uh, that's a much better approach. If you want to try to do this for a living than trying to just be like the factual journalist and all that. And that's like right. the old model of doing things. It doesn't work that way. So, so for example, I used to do just straight up film analysis and then, you know, I would do like a voice of Nick Cage or whoever. And somebody finally said, do your next video analysis. Uh, that's 10 minutes long of a Nick Cage movie in the entire Nick Cage voice for the whole video. <laughs> so actually I did this. I did a whole video where it's Nick Cage analyzing his own movie. Uh, and I, I was happy with it the way it came out. I did another video where I was analyzing the Jordan Peterson, Slavoj Zizek debate. And somebody was like, well, you better, you know, include the two voices of those guys debating in the midst of the video, which I did. And and that's a much better, more entertaining, you know, I'm all for infotainment. So I'm trying to say like a lot of people right. criticize infotainment. I'm all for it. Yeah, some people don't get it for sure. But one of the, oh man, I just have to tell you, this is not really a question, but I was, uh, one of the videos that I watched recently and I really liked was the Nietzsche Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky. Mm. Yeah. Just because I like when you dive into philosophy and I've kind of been a fan of philosophy, uh, armchair, you know, uh, Mm. over, over the years. But um, the way you said Kierkegaard, that's been stuck in my head for weeks. What did I say? Don't remind me. Yeah, dude. You sit there, every time you say his name, you say, Kierkegaarden. Sir, and Kierkegaard. Oh. (laughs) And that's been ringing in my head for weeks. It is weird how that works. So see, the only reason I got to talk to you is because I did some ridiculous on the cuff thing. So pretty much everything, by the way, that I do is it's all improv. I don't, I don't plan anything. I don't write. That was the video was just me reading uh, an old philosophy essay I had written, but anytime it's voices and that kind of, it's just all on the cuff. Cause I've always enjoyed improv. My, my buddy and I, when we used to do um, theater in high school, we would always just enter the improv um, routines or uh, uh, competitions. And, and we were pretty good. We, we did, we did good at that. So I find that more enjoyable than if you try to write a standup routine, it just seems very rote and very boring. Uh, so yeah. I'm always just more interested in the just crazy on the fly, just going wild type of, of comedy. Yeah. It's definitely more fun for sure. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, well, but I'm know, glad you liked it. No, I I, I the, love it when you yeah. get into philosophy. I it's just analyzing philosophy in that way. I think just gets to the nitty gritty of what's being you know carried out in the symbolism and the messaging and all that. It kind of absolutely gives you the foundation. Well, I remember yeah, when I, when I was uh, starting undergrad, we had a professor and I, I met with him, and I was like, well, I want to do philosophy, but I'm worried. Like, what can I do with this degree? Uh, you know, when I if I study philosophy, like, how am I going to make money if I don't? get a PhD. Right. And he said, uh, you won't. And, uh, the only other option is, uh, comedy. He said, I think Steve Martin did philosophy. Right. <laughs> so, right. so basically that was my options. I could like go get the PhD, spend $80,000 or, you know, try to just be a, a wacky comedian guy. And uh, I remember talking to another professor and he said, well, what are you going to do if you don't get your, your PhD in philosophy? Uh, I said, I'll probably do comedy. And he laughed. He said, you can't do that. You'll never, you'll never make it. Well, here I am. You had your first audience there if you made him laugh. Exactly right. Yeah. So it shows him. But but thank you for uh, yeah I, I I do integrate philosophy as part of the teaching approach because I think uh, this is the way education is going is that education in the future won't be so tied to the establishment and the university system that's kind of dying and going away. That's the old model. People are going to just go and seek out. I mean, as long as the internet allows us to, unless the internet goes away or something, kill switch or whatever. But as long as people have the ability to seek it out, uh, they're going to research what they want to research. So for part of the way that I make a living, isn't just the books and and the, the Hollywood stuff, but I also teach philosophy. Like I teach lectures to people. I tutor people personally. Um, wow, sweet. They just pay me directly. So that's a big part of how I make a living, actually, is, is through philosophy. So all of those elements, elements are there. Uh, and it's just a matter of, over time, kind of letting your personality uh, spill forth. And I, I think that so people say, well, what do you do? And I'm just kind of like, well, this is this is really just a reflection of me. Like, all the stuff that you see is just, just my interest, basically. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's interesting. I was uh, poking around your website, and we get... Uh, I mean, we're lucky we have uh, supporters and we we've gone through Patreon and we've tried mm-hmm. several different ways of uh, trying to make this a, a, you know, a full time gig. And, you know, mm-hmm. we have some very generous supporters, but, uh, you know, learning the lesson of how difficult it is to monetize something like a podcast, which essentially should be free or all, you know, is free in our case. I see you have a membership area on your Mm -hmm. website and things like that. We've had a number of, well, people ask us constantly about starting a podcast and how to do that and how to get it monetized. And I say, you know, if you you figure it out, you let us know. Um, But, you know, just asking for a friend, what exactly it does your full time sort of monetization look like? I mean, you mentioned doing personal philosophy courses and a membership area on your website and stuff like that. So basically what I did was, uh, uh, about three, two and a half, three years ago, I got the idea to do talks based on books I'd read because I read a whole bunch, had all this knowledge. And I thought, well, how can I make a living from having knowledge and reading books a lot? Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I can just do lectures. I don't have a problem speaking before cameras or audio or whatever and and, and presenting lectures. That's I wanted to be a professor. So why not do that and then basically just charge people for the second half? So that's what I started doing. I went with a half-half model three years ago. 
Um, and that has grown very well. I do, I do good with that. That's my, my main means of income is just to basically teach people philosophy. Now, there's other subjects I cover. Sometimes I do interviews with people. Uh, sometimes I do geopolitical analysis. Sometimes I do, um, like I said, the globalism book series as part of it. So it kind of is broad as well. And some of the Hollywood content is half and half. Like I've done a few documentaries, just kind of mini docs, I call them, that are half and half on certain important films or whatever. Um, so there's just a members you know, section that, that people subscribe to and they get access to. And I, I bill it like you're getting a graduate school education for, you know, four ninety five a month or $60 a year. And, and it's, it's done very well. People, people really enjoy it. But, uh, and I, like you said, I, I also have people I consult often <laughs> who are like, tell me how to do what you do. And, and there's a, you know, a lot more can be said about the specifics, but main thing is that it's a lot of work. I mean, you basically, yeah. it becomes, um, if you're trying to start out doing it, it's difficult because if you have a day, day job, uh, you know, you're basically having to do this in all your spare time. So it's like another part-time job if you're doing it part-time, which I did for a long time when I was working and in school. And then eventually you can kind of, you know, if you save up or whatever, you can kind of branch out and then, you know, you start buying new equipment, you start getting more computers, you start doing this, you start doing that, adding this service, moving, you know, uh, you just kind of build on it and you kind of move through these levels and phases of doing it. And um, once you're able to do it full time, you can have, you know, obviously a lot quicker uh, exponential growth because uh, you, you can devote all your time to it. But then the downside of that is that uh, you kind of don't have a life anymore. I, I, I mean, pretty much from the time <laughs> I wake up. You're always know, working. It's always work. Yeah, from the time yeah. I wake up until late at night. I mean, that's this is all I do. Yeah. Um, but I'm also very driven, so I want to, you know, want to have success in what I'm doing. And in order to cover a lot of areas, you kind of have to consistently work. Yeah, yeah, totally. Sure. I mean, that that's kind of the switch. And, uh, you know, you, you want the freedom, you don't want the nine to five. And right. so you want to do your own thing, especially in podcasting and stuff like that, which Gons and I love. And we've, uh, you know, had our own uh, successes over the years. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you, you trade in your nine to five job for a 24 seven job. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, especially with your, your cell phones now, your smartphones, you can be out and mm -hmm. about. And you're still reading articles or looking up things, and it's just always, it can be, it definitely can be a little unhealthy sometimes. And it's, it is, yeah. And it's difficult too when you get to the point where, like, if you have a lot of people you're tutoring and you have a subscription service and you have Patreon and you have YouTube and you have, right. you know, sometimes people you can on Twitter. And so you're just like, it's almost impossible to keep up with, you know, 50, 60 messages coming in a day. Um, and it's just, you know, going to be ex exponential, hopefully, you know, things keep growing. So, you know, it gets to the point where eventually, I guess you have to hire people and you've got to have, you know, other people working with you or whatever, but cause well, it's getting just, to where, you know, yeah, you can just clone you and, uh, build an AI based on your, uh, work patterns oh, yeah. and you know, you're good to go, man. That'll be the day. <laughs> That'll be the day. So, you know, you've talked a lot about philosophy. You mentioned it quite a bit here, and it sounds like you've got uh, quite a good grasp on philosophy. How exactly does that fit into your life, your personal life, your work? Mm -hmm. Is there a specific philosophy that you um, sort of focus on? And then, uh, you know, I might ask the same about faith. Well, uh, ultimately, uh, yeah, I'm a religious philosopher um, when it comes to the direct application of philosophy. When I do apologetics or debates, um, I use the transcendental argument, presuppositional apologetics, 
Um, I was trained in that school. I went to Monson Seminary when I was younger. And then when I did my undergraduate work, uh, I focused on analytical philosophy, uh, some continental philosophy. Um, you might need to give a little bit ancient. of a description of a lot of that because I'm not sure if, you know, I mean, I know all yeah. <laughs> about what you're saying, but for Gons, I don't want to leave them in the, in the dust here. <laughs> Uh, so if you think about philosophy, basically there's three, three branches. Historically, there's ethics, which is right and wrong. There's, uh, metaphysics, which is what's real, what's not, what exists, what doesn't. And there's epistemology, which is how do we know what we know, what's true, what's false, what's the difference between a belief and an opinion or certitude. Can we have certainty? Right? So these are different philosophical questions in those branches and what makes up a worldview or our, our philosophy is those three branches. So what I kind of focused on was um, how belief systems work, how our uh, presuppositions inform our worldview, how we read the world through the lens of our presuppositions, right? and how all those things kind of intertwine. So that's a specific branch of philosophy that's called transcendental argumentation. So that's a, a, one of the key areas that I focused on. Uh, and then in grad school, I did a lot more focus on the classics. So I do a lot of talks on Plato, Plato's Republic, Platonism. Mm -hmm. um, I also have a lot, a lot of time that I put into the Church Fathers, uh, which is basically the first seven, eight hundred years of Christianity, how the Bible came to be, the writings of all those Church Fathers, uh, and then what apologetics is, is basically giving a defense of your beliefs. So that's why I will debate uh, prominent atheists pretty frequently. Uh, don't have any problem debating any of those guys. It usually goes pretty well. To date, I've not lost a debate, which I can say is pretty much everybody agrees. <laughs> there hasn't there been a lost go. debate yet. Uh, so, that's, so it's relevant for a lot of reasons. I mean, the logic, philosophy can help you in business. It can help you in analyzing the news. You know, you look for contradictions. You don't want to be duped and fooled. Um, and when you study these things, you know, on more advanced levels, uh, you know, it almost becomes intuitive at a point. So a lot of people say, so well, when you're going into a debate, do you do a lot of, a lot of preparation? Not really. Uh, it just depends on who I'm debating, what the topic is. But typically, when it's like atheist materialists or whatever, uh, they kind of always fall back into the same boxes. Um, so there's a limited number of options that they can choose. So I already know the outcomes of, the, of where they're going to go with their presuppositions. So that's one right. of the advantages of presuppositional apologetics is that you already know where people are going to go. Yeah, I've noticed because that for yeah, sure. They're forced exactly. They're forced to those conclusions. So, so it's it's beneficial for debate. It's beneficial for that. It's beneficial for uh, my theology, which you asked about. And so, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so I, I defend and promote uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So, specifically, I attend Russian Orthodox Church, but uh, Orthodoxy is is not one nation or branch. It's it's all these different countries, uh, orthodoxy is, is the second biggest uh, so-called Christian grouping in the world um, after the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so so that's what I am a big part of and a big proponent of, uh, and that pretty much informs everything else to a degree. So, I mean, I don't just talk about theology. Obviously, you can see I talk about all kinds of things, but, but there is a lot of, of theological material as well. Sweet. And you see that uh, that worldview uh, has a place in, in a lot of your work. Mm -hmm. Does that include your comedy? That's a good question. I never really thought about it, um, but maybe. 
Uh, maybe my comedy is too godless. I don't know. Maybe that's an area I need to clean up. <laughs> I, I mean, well, uh, I haven't really thought about that, but uh, I guess it should inform, uh, and maybe to a degree it does. Yeah. Uh, um, let's say I'm looking through like some of the comedy videos I did. I mean, yeah, to a degree, I would say so. Like sometimes yeah, well, I'm, I'm mocking things that I think are r ridiculous based on my presuppositions. So yes. Yeah. It's interesting because even you know I don't consider myself. A Let me comedian. give an example. Let me. Hey, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off. But, no, no. Uh, please. One, one key example popped up, which is a uh, video making fun of. Have uh, you ever seen how people do these DMT trip reports? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I did a, a, a video mocking one of those that I think came out really funny. Um, so I'm kind of making fun of that Joe Rogan style worldview where like you'll, you'll automatically be enlightened if you do DMT and all this stuff. Um, so that one, that one came out pretty funny. And uh, that one is based on uh, the fact that I, I don't think, I think hallucinogens are far overvalued in that regard. <laughs> oh, sure. Totally. Yeah. Cause you, you know, I, again, I don't claim or consider myself to be a comedian per se, but, uh, like to stay on the lighter side of things, make jokes, stuff like that. We've got our show Canary cry news talk, which is just ripe for, uh, uh, you know, comedy in the news and things like that, right. especially regarding transhumanism, AI robots, that kind of stuff. And, uh, I've certainly gotten a lot of criticism. A lot of people don't like it when you make light of things like, you know, even just uh, global elitism or, uh, uh, anything having to do with uh, spirituality or religion or, you know, talking about the Illuminati or mm -hmm. even chemtrails. I've gotten people, uh, emailing me saying, Hey man, chemtrails are no laughing matter. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. we're not we're not just uh, bots that that spit out facts. We're human beings that have multiple facets to our personality, to our being. Uh, unless you happen to be a one-sided human being, I'm not. <laughs> I, I have you know. There's a, there's a time. It's like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. There's a time for every purpose. Right. There's, right. A, there's a time to be funny. There's a time to be serious. There's a time to have peace. There's a time to go to war. There's a time for all these things. Uh, and so it's really just kind of a stunted, one-sided person that doesn't have a sense of humor, I would say. That's kind of ridiculous. Oh, burn. <laughs> There's passages in the Bible, too, like Psalm 2-4, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the, the Lord scoffs right. at them. Right. Uh, God does a lot of mocking, you know, especially in the Old Testament there. So it's not yeah, unfamiliar. Right. I think he's got a sense of humor with some of this stuff, too. So Exactly. I don't think well, the it's, last uh, biblical talk, yeah. I, I think you're right. Last biblical talk I did was on uh, the book of Sirach, which is one of the deuterocanonical books, which is really good, by the way. If you haven't read Sirach, I highly recommend it. And um, I'm doing lectures going all the way through it. And a lot of Protestants are enjoying it, by the way. But uh, there's actually funny parts. And Sir, Sir, the author of Sirach is actually he's pretty amusing at times. And he has some, some really funny quips. So yet another attestation, uh, depending on what biblical canon you accept, yeah. uh, that, that there is a place for, for humor. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. I am working on a project and I'm reading a, a book right now. It's a scholarly book called uh, Satire and the Hebrew Prophets. Mm. which uh, wow. goes through um, a lot of comedy, but more specifically satire and irony in that, you know, the Hebrew prophets used satire before, you know, technically, you know, it's, it was it's, known. Yeah. It's academically considered that the, oh, I, I believe the Romans um, wow. sort of invented satire. And then the Hebrew huh. prophets were being satirical thousands of years before that um and it's, i want that what's what's the name of it 
It's called uh, Satire and the Hebrew Prophets. Actually, uh, before, no, no. yeah, take it for a second. I can actually grab it. I'll give you the author, too. Um, one second. Okay, yeah. Um, seems like uh, uh, definitely an area that it's natural to go to, this the sort of humor side of things, because, I mean, really, when you start to grasp it, and you said, you, you know, you mentioned earlier how a lot of, like, recognizing a lot of stuff in culture becomes intuitive, and when it gets yeah. to that point where it is intuitive, you start laughing at what you see. You start looking at it, and you, you kind of go, oh, my gosh, that is so ridiculous that they did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other part exactly. of it, too, and I think people I think people like us, where we're actually in it every day and looking at stuff, we move to that place of, like, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous. we we, we got to laugh at this. Uh, we move there sooner than a lot of people that kind of dabble or just kind of, you know, just kind of look at some of these things as a hobby or whatever. Um, yeah. because they see in pop culture, a lot of mocking of that themselves. Almost. There's a lot of like, I remember the guacamole commercial during the super bowl a couple of years ago, like all secret society symbols and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, they're sort of right. making fun of themselves. Like, Oh yeah, it's kind of out there now. We just, you know, everybody knows, but here we are kind of making fun of that whole idea. Even, right. And, and, you know, people that kind of know about that stuff, look at that and go, Hey, this is a serious, this is a serious matter here, but you know, that's not where they're at. They're there or that's not, you know, something that they're, they're not familiar with it enough to like really see that like this is just ridiculously over the top and really the best coping mechanism probably is humor and laughing (laughs) off some of the ridiculous stuff that we see. But um, I mean, uh, for me personally, anytime I'm looking at stuff, you know, every day, if I commented on the things that I find funny every day, it would, I mean, it would just be, I don't think people would necessarily get it, but I think I would lose a lot of followers (laughs) because they'd be like, what, what, I don't see why you think this is funny. You know, some of the serious stuff with like AI. It's a and risky maneuver. Yeah, it is a yeah. risky maneuver. In fact, when I the, some of the first comedic stuff I did, I I thought it was funny. And I look back and I still think it's funny. But initially, it was very, I was very, intri- I had trepidation about doing it because I thought, well, people aren't going to think. That. And, and it was kind of iffy. Like they were like, "What is this? We thought you did serious stuff. Why are you being like a retard now?" <laughs> and it was because, yeah, I was I was like, "Well, yeah, but this is another aspect of of my person." And you know, <laughs> this is me. And they're like, oh. "This is actually who I am." Is <laughs> most of the time I'm pretty ridiculous. It's I'm a dangerous just, thing being vulnerable not, yeah, like not that. Not just man. thinking about butt sex all day I'm, and <laughs> butt sex magic. I'm actually interested in other things in life and and not all this dark time. So right, yeah. It's called uh, "Satire in the Hebrew Prophets" by Thomas uh, Jamility. J-E-M-I-E-L-I-T-Y. Yeah, and you know, you see that, especially when you uh, consider Jesus Christ and his obvious, uh, you know, very knowledgeable and influence from the Hebrew prophets. I mean, that's what you get for being a rabbi. You got to know a lot about the Hebrew prophets. Well, he knew better than anybody because he he inspired, uh, you know, the Old Testament prophets. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, exactly. And um you know, and you see even Jesus using humor a lot in, well, specifically satire and humor uh, in his ministry, which we don't really think about a lot because, uh, you know, we kind of read Jesus as uh, very, you know, well, holy. And, uh, but, you know, when he's talking about uh, even why worry about the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in yours? Yeah, or I mean, like when he says, it's the, a the humorous that- idea. Yeah. When he when he talks to the Pharisees and he says, you know, like even to Nicodemus, uh, you're the teacher of the law and you don't know that Moses says this. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's kind yeah. of like that's being sarcastic, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so so you know, humor 
And of course, humor back then is a little bit different than it is now culturally. <laughs> but when you take everything into context, uh, a lot of what Jesus was doing was satirical and funny. Um, and so, yeah, I think taking a taking an example from the big man, I think it's okay to try to work a little bit of comedy into the, teaching the truth. Right. There exactly. you go. Well, cool. There you go, man. We're changing changing the way it's changing done. Changing the landscape. At least, at least you're doing well with it. You know, I, uh, I rolled out the iHeart 5G t-shirts and, mm-hmm. uh, nobody liked it. No, everybody <laughs> got so mad and I'm like, okay, I just want, I'll, I'll take that down. Nobody, uh, nobody got on, it. Man. If the punchline didn't land. Yeah. Everyone was like, I'll get it if it's a broken heart, which isn't the yeah. worst idea, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm like, you kind of takes the away whole... the punchline. Yeah, yeah. It so. is funny when those, yeah, I've had a few vids bomb pretty bad but on the whole they're, they, they do they do well but actually like that like that dmt one uh a lot of people didn't get get that it was satire which which <laughs> cracks me up because I, I andy kaufman level trolled them pretty well so they, they actually thought that i was this idiot doing his dmt report saying all this nonsense <laughs> and i said really ridiculous stuff and i got like at least a hundred comments saying like bro like dude i don't even think you really did it man because if you're saying, you just sound like an idiot man <laughs> I'm like, obviously, I am lying and joking and being. I, obviously, I didn't do it. Ironically, it's validating the absurdity of their own. It is, sort of like, yeah, because they're not smart enough to figure out this is obviously a joke, dude. Um, so, uh, I got a couple questions. You, uh, not to move on too quick, if you had something to add. But, uh, you know, you mentioned, hey, you've been tapped for, uh, you know, maybe developing some television programs or you've uh, pursued that or are currently pursuing options in that case. Um, and Gons and I, we've we've thrown that around a little bit. We've had some mm-hmm. uh, connections in that area. Mm-hmm. Obviously, nothing has uh, come to fruition. Mm-hmm. I'm still still holding out, though, all our <laughs> all our uh, Hollywood listeners. Um, you know, moving into that arena, is there any concern about, uh, the, the repercussions of something like that or the involvement in the television industry, signing or, your soul away to the devil, or have you experienced anything or look forward to experiencing anything, uh, that sort of maybe parallels to the type of stuff that, uh, you have pretty much spent a lot of time uh, exposing or exploring and and bringing light to. Uh, maybe initially I was a little skeptical when the offer was made. Uh, I don't know if you know who Jay Widener is, but he made the Kubrick documentary. He was in Room Two Thirty Seven, which is a famous Kubrick oh, documentary. Yeah. And then yeah. Ku- then Widener did two Kubrick documentaries on his own. So Jay reached out to me after my book came out, and he said, "Hey, would you like to work with me on a TV show?" And I didn't. I thought it was I don't know. I was like, is this a joke? <laughs> uh, I didn't take him seriously. And he's like, well, no, come down here and visit, you know, and see what you think. And so I, I went and saw the studios and, and met the people at Gaia. And at that time they got uh, Sean Stone to move from Lip TV in LA to Gaia. So, um, so what ended up happening was the idea was tossed around, you know, what if we took uh, kind of roughly the way that you, to do film analysis and then do a Siskel Ebert style show with you and Jay. And so that's what we did. And so we did a f- one full season 
Uh, I, that's what I'm most proud of, by the way. I never would have dreamed I would have been able to do that. The other thing I'm most proud of is being in that uh, Sean Stone's documentary with Oliver Stone. So that was like a uh, right. I never would have dreamed that I would ever have like a one day be in a documentary with Oliver Stone and I'd get to have a TV show. and all. So it's like fulfilling a lot of dreams that you never thought would have happened. Um, and then the actual experience of doing it. No, I, there was there wasn't any compromise. I wasn't offered any Illuminati millionaire, you know, uh, get a sleep with goats or whatever. Nothing like that's ever happened. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's nice to be able to do it, but it's not like I, I didn't make like a million dollars on this TV show. It's not, it, you don't make what you think you might. No, make. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I do have an IMDB now, by the way, uh, although my picture's not actually there. I do have an, IMDb, so, and not everybody can get an IMDB unless you're, yeah, on, the internet, unless you're on the internet. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Anybody can have an IMDB, but, um, no, so nothing bad has happened. I don't feel like I've compromised because um, it was just really a lot of what was in the book. I did have to kind of rewrite the the screenplay for the season or whatever. Yeah, well, it's cool that uh, you know that it got tapped for material that you were already right. producing. You know, the the value of your material alone. Uh, you know, didn't warrant too much, uh, you know, development or going back to the work, the workshop to get it uh, ready for air. So you guys should cool. watch it. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag, but I really am proud of the TV show and it, it came out awesome. Everybody liked it. Uh, it was a little well, too cerebral for, for the network. Um, and yeah. by the way, I don't, I don't work for Gaia. I, I got paid by Jay's company, so it wasn't anything to do with Gaia per se. Got it. Um, but it's a, it's a really cool show. Basically it's just, the stuff that you and I are talking about now, we're just dissecting film for 30 minutes. You know, we what's do. it called again? It's called Hollywood decoded. Oh, right. If you I look it I up, you'll see it. Some of it. Yeah. I think, I think I've, uh, I mean, I've at least seen some, uh, marketing for it. It's a, it's the show is really good. I'm not, I'm not just saying that. I mean, we did, uh, we did Roman Polanski. We did, um, uh, James Cameron. We did, I'm talking about their films. We did, um, right. Not them. <laughs> yeah, it looks like Kubrick. Just, look at this old crusty old. Look at this crusty old white guy. Look at this. Crusty old, uh, Titanic and Avatar, Kubrick, Blade Runner, yeah. Chinatown, Batman Begins, Minority Report. Wow, you you did get a nice little full season here, huh? Yeah, it's, it's nineteen it's, episodes. Yeah, and actually there were twenty three we filmed, so four awesome ones got canned, which kind of broke my heart, but that's okay. Okay. They got rid of uh, Rosemary's Baby, Mulholland Drive, and The Alien. Interesting. Why Ooh. do you think they cut those? They said they were too dark to air. Oh, oh. interesting. Yeah, so. Mulholland Drive was a pretty dark movie, too. I think I remember well, seeing that Well, what I one. did was, yeah, I made a video on my own, and I just uploaded to my YouTube channel my Mulholland Drive analysis, which it did okay. I'm happy with it. It's a, That's it's a, great. Yeah. But, Okay, well, that's cool. on Gaia TV. They want nine, my, they want ninety nine cents for me to sign up for a week here. So Although, I'll have to wait till you payday. You can watch if you scroll down to the Lord of the Rings episode. You can watch that one free. Ah, okay. One. Oh yeah, I see I'm the gonna free do that. There. Cool. Yeah. Well, very and cool. We got a new show uh, in the mix being shopped around. Um, and this will be different. It won't be anything to do with Gaia or that stuff. This is totally different. Uh, producer and it's me and three other people commenting on all of pop culture so it's not it's not hollywood it's you know music it's movies it's uh, everything um so if that gets bought that'll be that'll be really cool um but don't don't know what's going to happen with that 
Yeah, you never know, man. Show yeah, business is slow business, as they say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Nobody says that. <laughs> well, it's true. I know. Everything happens so slowly. Um, well, that's rad. And you're, you know, it's not often that uh, a guy who does what uh, the stuff that we're doing and people like us do uh, yeah. has the opportunity to kind of get into a traditional sort of uh, medium like that, you know, right. besides it, doing yeah. like a YouTube or something. So uh, I'm happy for you. What's my Illuminati connections? Uh, there you go. <laughs> I was going to say that was going to be my next question. Uh, well, if you yeah. do have some success, that's what people will say. They'll say, oh, it's only because you, you know. Oh, come, uh, oh yeah, yeah. That's CIA yeah. family or something. Gons, Gons, and I barely qualify for any sort of minor success, and <laughs> uh, there are full conspiracy theories about me being uh, Gons's uh, gay CIA oh. handler. Yeah, about and, how I'm, uh, a, I'm a Jes Japanese Jesuit Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, those things are out there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't really, well, I mean, I, I think we need to do a, just one big debunk, Basil, but I, we haven't gotten around to it because... I well, kind of like it. I, dude, yeah. You got a fat-ass channel, dude. You got like 200, what, 250,000? Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. It's been kind of, it's been weird the last, uh, this whole 2019, actually. They've kept me in 257,000 subscribers, and um, uh -oh. for okay. the first time, I, there's like huge dips where, there are, you know, a large number of people unsubscribe, and... Mm -hmm. Uh, they've just kind of yeah. kept me at 257,000. It's really weird. Every time it mm -hmm. starts moving up, they just, uh, you know, I have negative days and it just goes back down to, right. Yeah. But you know, that's kind of the game right now. Everything's happening. It is the trick. Yeah. So yeah, it's good that you're, you know, definitely someone like you, you're doing, uh, you're figuring out ways to, I guess, monetize, so to speak, uh, the things that you do in, uh, various, various ways other than just YouTube, because obviously yeah, and that's, I think the key away. too is to, is to think about multiple ways to do it. So, yeah. you know, not just relying on one form, but you know, you, if, if, if you can have the Patreon and if you can have a book and if you can have, you know, a channel and if you can do other things, it's a lot better <laughs> than, than, you know, just relying on. Oh yeah. Right. No, you gotta have multiple streams. This ain't, there ain't one person paying or signing your right. paycheck anymore. Exactly. Um, so now just to get back on track a little bit, uh, what is this, the, your current excitement, what topic, what uh, project, what, what's the thing currently holding your attention so we all know you, you, you got to switch around a lot, uh, to, to stay entertained yourself and engaged yourself. What's currently holding your attention? Well, uh, I'm really interested. I got really interested in Minds of Men, Aaron and Melissa's documentary. Um, oh, got yeah. to go hang out with them last week, meet them. That was really cool. And we did some filming. So their next uh, documentary project, which I can't say what it is. She made me promise. He made me promise not to say. <laughs> uh, but so it will have a big chunk of me. Thank God. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah, so, we had yeah. Melissa on the show not too long ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah there so, may be some, uh, you might have some competition for airtime on that. That thing. Oh, I, I don't there. doubt there's other people involved. I, I'm not saying that. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, it's it's just like, about you, Jay. Yeah, they're just a documentary on me. And, no, no, no. I just <laughs> meant that um, uh, I'm looking forward to being in work of people that I respect, is, is what I'm getting at. Right. You know, right, right. I think do really good work. Um, that was It was an honor, honestly. That's how I view it. Awesome. Call it the mind oh, cool. of Jay. 
the mind. Because that kind of stuff you know is going to come about. I mean, there's more certitude with the work they do than, oh, you know, is producer going to sell some show to, you know, Netflix or whatever? Probably not. Uh, Not because the producer is not a good guy, but just because of the attitude of, you know, Netflix and HBO and those kind of networks are, are not amenable to quality type content that I would put out. Um, so you can, I can rely on, you know, the quality kind of content that Aaron and Melissa do. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, yeah. and it is great content. Yeah, too. And I think minds of men actually was taken down off of Amazon, uh, this past right. week as we record this. So exactly. they're, they're definitely trying to, uh, you know, while the whole, uh, Crowder thing has been the public distraction for a lot of the censorship conversations, uh, this week anyway, yeah. uh, it's definitely been some of the, the, the people were really doing some some dirty work in terms of exposing this stuff and bringing to light the reality of our history and all that. Uh, they're the ones being censored, right. you know, that nobody really makes too much of a fuss about because they're too distracted yeah. with other stuff. But, you know, I, I think we're going to start wrapping here. Do you have, um, I guess Basil asked you like the, the question about what you're excited about. Uh, is there no, I'm, I'm, yeah. the other thing would be um, I'm doing kind of a series of, philosophy and, and the Bible. Uh, so that is an ongoing thing, which, uh, I'm really looking forward to the next installment of that. Um, and then I also do, like I said, the globalism book series where I lecture through each one of these writings of, of the top elite. Um, so the next one of those will probably be another Julian Huxley book or something along those lines. I think the oh, last yeah. one I did was Julian Huxley. So, so those are the two kind of things I'm I'm working on at the present that I'm looking forward to. And then there'll also be this, the fun stuff on the side, movie-wise. Uh, right after getting off with, with you guys, we got a big stream coming up tonight, uh, celebrating 40,000 nerds that have subscribed to my channel. Nice. Uh, we're going right. to do three Terry Gilliam movies. So we're going to do 12 Monkeys, um, Brazil, and uh, what's the other one we chose? One of the other t- uh, Terry Gilliam movies. I forget. Robot I jocks. Written, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we will. I'll, you know what? I'm going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, buddy. That's what we're talking about. And well, that's awesome. of, uh, Sorry, just one oh, last thing. Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. Oh, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. That's yes. It. That is a crazy Terry Gilliam movie. So we're going to do these three on, a, on the live stream here in a minute when I get off with you guys. Nice. nice. You mentioned Julian Huxley. Mm-hmm. One of the books that uh, Aaron and Melissa... Uh, sent me was UNESCO its purpose and philosophy. Yes, that's uh, what I lectured on. Yeah, yeah, this is it's got everything in there, man. It does. <laughs> it's dude. Unbelievable when you read it. It's, it's like, crazy. Oh, wow. Okay, there it is. The agenda. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. we go. Well, Jay Dyer, my man, thank you so much again, everybody. You need to head over to uh, Jay's analysis dot com you got to check out uh, jay dyer's youtube channel get it there's all sorts of stuff and a, a good mix it'll keep like i said whoever you are whatever you're into jay's got something for you and uh, keeps it fresh keeps it exciting and got big things in the work uh, in the works so jay dyer thank you so much for coming on the show buddy if there's any other plugs you want to do now is the time uh, yeah, just last thing would just be to point out that if people do want to subscribe, you can subscribe there at my site to the to the archives and the lectures and all that. And if you buy the book from me in the shop at my site, you get signed copies. So that's the advantage of getting hey. it from the from the author and not from Amazon, because of course authors don't make anything at Amazon. So if you can get it from me, then uh, I'll send you a sweet signed copy. And uh, thank you guys so much for having me. It was an honor, um, and I'm looking forward to diving into you guys' content. 
Well, cool. thanks a lot, thanks. buddy. We appreciate that. And we're going to be doing the same. Again, you got to head to jaysanalysis.com if you want that sweet, sweet uh, 90s stand-up jet ski vibe. <laughs> New retro and, uh, wave. Make, sh- make sure to get into it. Again, one last time, Jay, thank you so much for Absolutely. coming Absolutely. And I want to tell everybody at Jay's Analysis, be sure and subscribe to Face Like the Sun, and I'll have you guys linked as well. Nice. Boom. <laughs> So there you have it. That was our discussion with Jay Dyer. Definitely check out all the things he's got going on. He's definitely unique, one of a kind, and really doing a good job spreading the truth of the gospel in this unique way. So check out his stuff. I'm not going to go through all the things that you know about, like Canary Cry News Talk, the Face Like the Sun channel, the Joy Spiracy Theory, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. You guys already know about it. You know about our Patreon on both Canary Cry Radio and Canary Cry News Talk, where you get extended reports on News Talk and Canary Cry Conversations on the Canary Cry Radio Patreon page. But I wanted to leave a message to all of you from Basil, actually. I found this little piece of Basil data from the archives, and I think it's a message for all of you today listening to this episode. So let's see what he has to say here. All right, Basil Robot, what do you have to say to the people? You're the best. Oh, that's nice of you. All right, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, think outside the cage. <laughs>